Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome once again to another episode of More Perfect Union. Today, we investigate our union from the First Amendment and religion, which rarely gets talked about under the guise of the First Amendment and other aspects of our belief systems. If there is anything that is harder than a fact, yes, there is. The thing that is harder than a fact is a belief, whether it is a fact or not. And belief systems are indeed stubborn things. That said, comes the question in our digital age, do we pack up the babies and grab the old ladies and everyone go to Brother Love's traveling show? This has happened before, and now in the digital world, it becomes an app. An app. Are we apt to donate? Pun intended. I've opened the floor to our guests and panelists today. We have with us once again, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and our representative on the Hill, Jeff Roy. Good morning to all. The floor is open. Good morning. Morning. And in all fairness to my friends here, my fellow panelists, I must disassociate myself, albeit it was my moniker for well over three years, uh, with any reference to Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show back in the day when I was uh -huh. in radio uh, on the top 40 side, I was Brother Love. There can be more than one Brother Love. Yes. Excuse no, me. You no. still are Brother Love. You are. You'll <laughs> always be Brother Love. That's right. And that's and how that you be... sign your name on your checks. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the ones that I guarantee will not yield any money on the other end. <laughs> um, but, but I freely must admit that religion is, for me, a very, not just personal, as it is probably for everyone, but also a troubling piece of the philosophical uh, bent. As most of our listeners probably know, religion, like law, stems from the same social subject source, which is philosophy. And you're right, Pete, that the belief system for us as a species uh, really sort of flies the gamut. And personally, I happen to have one tremendous fear, which is only only one, <laughs> only one when it comes. Well, when it comes to religion, my let me show you my portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine truly is as as a religious person, which I count myself among. Mm -hmm. My greatest fear is, what if I'm wrong? What if my beliefs are wrong? Well, self-doubt is important among the more mature of us, isn't it? 
I I think it is. Yes. I think it is. I Michael, think it's- just remember, even if you're wrong, Jesus will save you. That's right. <laughs> I hope so. I believe it in my heart. Yes. Uh, that uh, And actually, I believe that I am saved uh, and amongst those and stuff that are enlightened. Uh, but your thoughts? Well, I love that question, Michael, that what if I'm wrong? I think you know, in my experience, and you know, many of you know, I grew up in Greece. I grew up in a, a religious Christian Orthodox household, but I spent a decade plus in the UN working in Lebanon, which is very, very interesting religiously because religion and politics there are somewhat enshrined. It's a, a country where the president is Orthodox, the prime minister is Sunni, the speaker of the house is Shia, like you have to, you cannot have a political position without that religious affiliation because they have 11 plus religions and they've decided that that's how, you know, so it's a very different framework from a separation of say state and, and church in the U S although, you know, it's interesting that I think every president in the United States has been of a religion and obviously with Kennedy, you know, it's, is which one. So I don't think an atheist yet has stepped up for the top sort of position. It would be interesting to hear. But for me, this doubt um, is helpful in in ensuring that we don't become so focused on being right, but actually delving down into our similarities. You know, Christianity is one um, faith. There is Judaism. We we had, um, you know, a great speaker earlier, you know, during Hanukkah, come speak to us. Um, There is Islam, Hinduism, but of course, Buddhism and, and many other religions. And for me, uh, I think about, I'm thinking about religion right now in the context of COVID uh, and how it's playing out both positively and negatively. So just some thoughts about the positives. You know, religion has been instrumental for people feeling isolated, the mental health piece. You know, COVID, we shut down and people turn to their faiths, to their communities virtually to find that solace. You know, in a time when thousands of people are dying every day, Um, It's really difficult if you don't have some sort of faith. But religion has also been used pretty negatively, you know, religious exemptions to the vaccines. Although I'm proud to say that the, you know, the Greek Orthodox uh, Archbishop in the U.S. said there is no such thing as a religious exemption from his perspective and told all the priests that they could not sign something like that. So there's an interesting kind of good and bad that can come from religion when we're talking about public health and, and science. And I think if we're able to acknowledge these questions, you know, what if I'm wrong? What are the bads? What are the risks? Then we can actually put religion to good use to ensure that it's moving us towards a direction where, um, you know, people are, are, are benefiting from both their belief system, but also the institutions. And I think there is a big important distinction between beliefs and institutions. Uh, there is indeed. In fact, <clears throat> I, I dare say that the whole concept of separation of church and state and how it's handled in other countries and how religion is combined with the state. You know, it should, in, it should indicate to all of us that if there is anything that rivals the power of government of the state itself, it is of course religion and governments fear religion. And quite frankly, there are many religions that fear government. Those are the two major powers in play that, that flow through our lives. Uh, and if the government can't provide what we need, hello, COVID, there are folks who certainly hope that religion can play a role. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, as, as I thought about <clears throat> the discussion we were going to have today, I immediately thought of 
the back of the dollar bill. And if you pull out a dollar bill and uh, follow along with me, and uh, I'll give you a few moments to pull out your dollars as, you, if you, as you're listening. But if you're driving, uh, don't pull out a dollar out of your uh, wallet while you're driving. Uh, do this when you get home. But um, and with chapters. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, all of our money and uh, at the very beginning of our country, uh, uh, it states in God we trust. Look at that. Um, look at the pyramid on the left side, on the back of a dollar. You see this eye with uh, radiance around it, and that's the the all-seeing eye. And it's surrounded by the words "annuit coeptus," which is Latin for "Providence has favored our undertakings." And uh, you know, you combine that with in God we trust in this all-seeing eye, and I can see that uh, Michael has his dollar out. It, it, it's amazing to me that we enshrined in the Bill of Rights this separation of church and state, yet we uh, surrounded ourselves with uh, images and language and symbols of uh, God being someone in whom we trust and God who's favoring our undertaking. So I, I often think of that context when uh, we have these discussions. Uh, I myself um, have been raised a Roman Catholic. I'm Roman Catholic to this very day. Um, faith is a very important part of my life, um, but I definitely try to separate the work that I do um, in government from my religion. And uh, I dare say that I have seen times where um, religion has conflicted with some of the um, decisions I have made. Uh, and I've asked that question of uh, what if I'm wrong uh, in that context? Um, and I, I do recall very early on in my legislative career sitting down with my parish priest and inquiring, you know, what, what do you think? I, I mean, I may be encountered by some decisions that may put me in conflict. And it was encouraging to me that he sat there and he said, you follow your heart, exercise your judgment the way you feel it should be exercised. And uh, people will not, you know, they may disagree with you, but they're not gonna cast a judgment on you because they know that you have uh, followed your heart and exercised uh, logic and reasoned judgment. And, you know, that gave me great comfort. Um, and I have to say that uh, I have not been tied and feathered uh, along the way in making these decisions. And that's uh, provided me a great measure of comfort. Um, but, you know, I think it's uh, important that we explore the intersection of what we do uh, in government. And uh, I'm gonna go grab it um, and I'll, I'll read it to you when, uh, at, at some other point in this, but there's a great quote from LBJ that I keep on, on my cabinet in my office that uh, I think speaks to the melding between government uh, and religion. And I'll stop right there and turn it over to someone else at this point. Well, let me jump back in with, with an amen uh, uh, Jeff, with regard to keeping religion and politics separate 
as much as you can in this country. Now, again, I think as Natalia pointed out, not all countries sort of operate that way. Ours, albeit uh, we, I think, <clears throat> muddle the issue of politics and religion. Technically, we're supposed to have a separation between politics and religion. And I'm always worried when that separation becomes muddled. Uh, I think we're in some of those times now where there are many political decisions that are being based upon, well, uh, my faith tells me, and then fill in the blank. I don't happen to believe that that actually is a good position for a politician. And believe it or not, it also reaffirms my support for Joe Biden. Joe Biden is one who constantly says, albeit my religion would lead me here, I am not going to let it influence my political thinking. And I think that's actually a very enlightened position for uh, a U.S. politician. And here's why. Uh, so much of religion, as I think, again, it was so eloquently framed by Pete at the beginning when we talk about belief systems, that we have to be careful that, again, and it also goes back to part of my fear, is my belief based on rational logic, science, things that I can affirm. Now, for me personally, I don't have to in my religious life have affirmation uh, of my belief in, and I'm Roman Catholic, uh, but I wasn't born Roman Catholic. I actually converted. And none of us actually are born into a uh, a religion unless one considers one's religion as part of one's ethnic makeup. But I started as a Southern Black evangelical Christian and then converted to Catholicism. So for me, the question always is, can I apply just the basic principles of my religion to my life? And then how do I separate that from my work and my political work in particular? And so the outcome question for me is, uh, Jeff and Natalia and Pete, am I doing good in my work? And then you see how that for me closes the loop because as part of religion, the one hope that we all have is that your religion focuses and moves you in the direction of doing good. Well, that leads me right to that phrase and that quote I was going to share with you. And it's on this lovely uh, device or image that I have that sits there. It says our mission, and this is LBJ speaking about government. Our mission is at once the oldest and most basic of this country to right wrong, to do justice, to serve man. Very solid religious overtones, but, you know, it's just a basic uh, notion of, you know, doing right, being just. And that's sort of uh, what most of us were taught uh, in our religion, uh, not everybody who is uh, pious and lives a, uh, as a zealot espouses those views. I see a lot of people who, to me, come across as hypocritical and, and contradictory in uh, saying how religious they are, but uh, don't really stand up for uh, that particular statement. But uh, I think it's a profound uh, way to look at what we're doing and um, yeah, we're called upon to do good. And uh, I hope that 
you know, what, whereas religion doesn't dictate what I do, it certainly uh, provides a good context for me in which to do what I do. I, I hope that makes sense. It does. In fact, I would point out that it's a great exercise uh, in writing. That is one of the, one of the great exercises of writing is to reduce something to its absolute essence, reduce something to first principles. If you look at LBJ's statement, which in fact has that elegance, and you feel that elegance, it becomes poetic. Is there any simpler way to say that? And that I think he's he's met the challenge that no, he got there. And so I I think it's you know at the core of what we all aspire religion and government to be. And then, of course, conversely, going the other way, we've heard the phrase that the Bible is the last bastion of a scoundrel and that there are people who, in fact, weaponize religion wherever they feel it suits their ends. Witness the former president walking across the street, dispersing the crowds, surrounded by his power, holding a Bible upside down. Thank you very much. You know, Pete, I think there is you know, truth to what you're saying, some people weaponize religion, but I also think some people that there are some real debates and that notion mm -hmm. of doing good by people that Jeff, you know, you so eloquently highlighted. What if we disagree on what good is? And I think the most obvious place, and maybe we shouldn't be going there, is around, for example, abortion or areas where, mm -hmm. you know, people really disagree fundamentally on what is good there. Are we talking about good protecting women, protecting their rights, their their ability to have a choice over their bodies that will shape their the rest of their life, whether they're going to be in poverty, whether they're going to get an education, you know, like fundamentally, there are many who say that protection is really fundamental to women's, you know, to gender equality. And, and from a health perspective, obviously, we see it as a, as a health issue. But others would say, you know, absolutely not. And it's not just their religion, but, you know, they, they just morally have a disagreement. So that becomes difficult. And, you know, I agree with you, Jeff, in terms of that desire and, and ability to separate the two. I was quite, you know, I, I grew up religious too. So when I was on the campaign trail, I reached out to some religious leaders in, in, you know, in the Greek community and I didn't want to deceive them that my beliefs, you know, I'm very progressive. Uh, and I sort of said to them flat out when I was talking to them for, you know, I asked for their blessing, which was a very weird thing. But then I also said, but you should know, you know, my beliefs on LGBTQ rights and, you know, they're not fully aligned. And they said, you have our blessing because we know that you are doing it out of a desire to do good. This isn't you trying to undermine the church. You're not trying, you are trying to bring about greater equality, greater well-being, you know, happiness to, to people. And that fundamentally, we are aligned on that, even mm -hmm. if we disagree on some of these stances. And it gave me such sort of peace, peace of mind that it was okay for me in my political life to be very clear that these are fundamental rights that I will not stand by discrimination based on on sexual orientation or gender identity. And yet I can still be a good person in mm -hmm. the view of sort of my church. And, um, you know, I, I look at Reverend Barber, for example, who who talks about racism and sexism and and really articulates and about gay rights and and has kind of stepped into that role. And I'm like, wow, that is a model for religion that isn't um, defensive, that isn't trying to, to stop society from moving, but is integrated and really puts back and to the front of the conversation, like, what are the values? Are we all trying to move forward towards more justice, better life on this earth? And hopefully, you know, for those who believe an ability to move to, to a future life. 
And, and it's, you know, for me, at least it's given me some comfort that I can have views that by the scriptures might not be appropriate, but that I can still be part of a faith community and a political community. And I like that. Mm. And let me jump in real quick with, uh, with another sort of anecdote about Reverend Barber. I've had a couple of conversations with him where we were in a group of folks who chided themselves as evangelical. And he was quick to say, you know, let's not forget that we have a lot of conservative evangelicals in the black community, many of whom support, for example, um, the, uh, the right to life movement. Uh, but at the same time, many of them don't want, and here is, I guess, the, uh, you know, sort of the real, I think, benefit of a Remen Barber. Many of them don't want the government to impose its religious will upon us by taking a particular religious belief and now imposing that on 100% of all of us. Um, and when he says those things, I think that that is part of the role of a uh, of a politician. And I also think it's the role of religion to point out to itself its inconsistencies and to point out some of the wrong that those of us who are religious people do. I have many conversations with my Muslim brothers and sisters who just outright flat uh, just rebel against some of the human rights atrocities committed in the name of, of those who are Muslim. So I think it's important for us as a country to sort of live by that, uh, that credo that we are a country that believes in the separation of religion and government. You know, it uh, reminds me of uh, the West Wing. West Wing was one of my favorite uh, TV shows. And um, I was one of the only TV shows that I actually took notes for future reference. And there was an episode called The Midterms. And uh, President Bartlett was having an exchange with a, um, uh, a religious um, talk show host. And, you know, there was a comment that she had made about um, you know, homosexuality, homosexuality being an, an abomination. And, uh, you know, he confronts her and he says, how can you call that uh, and horrible? And she says, I don't say it's horrible. Uh, the Bible does. It's it's Leviticus 1822. And uh, let me share with you what the president said to her over the next few minutes of the show. He says, chapter and verse, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm, I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus uh, 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would be a good price for her? And then uh, while thinking about that, can I ask another question? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath, Exodus 35.2, clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? And here's one that's really important because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? 
And finally, he asked, can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? I think that little exchange that happened on that TV show truly exemplified what you, Michael, and Natalia were, were just talking about. You know, I think we have to step back and think about, uh, you know, how people getting up on, on a pedestal, um, you know, can be dangerous and can be inconsistent. And um, as pointed out in that little exchange, it just doesn't make sense. There um, are phenomenal aspects and, and, you know, my religion plays a key role in uh, things that I do in my life, but uh, I don't impose my will on others. And I think that's a big, uh, a big difference in, in the approach. Well, I, for one, you know, feel that at my last comment about the, you know, the Bible being the last bastion of a scoundrel, it's, it's, it's clearly a case of, we have seen notably over this century with the introduction of mass media, the introduction of more and more communications capability, the fact that while you can cherry pick phrases of the Bible to suit the ends you seek, it becomes all the more powerful when you have the ability to do that on a mass scale, to move from you know the tent revival to the internet, to social media, to the great amplifier of social opinion. My concern is that when you enter belief systems, when you enter, inject religion into the discussion, into the, call it the social media zeitgeist, what you have is this uh, unfortunate amplification of all of the same social phenomena that make social media as dangerous as it can be. The, the bombast and the power of extreme statements is the thing that concerns me because it is those extreme statements that seem to attract people who are in search of something. They don't know what they're in search of all the time, but they're in search of something. And, and unfortunately, without you know the discipline of careful consideration, they latch onto things that take on a religiosity for them whether it is truly religion or not. And that religiosity, that fire that it incites within them polarizes society. Uh, and it's, it's, it's disconcerting because it, it, it clearly splashes down into where all of these uh, supposed platforms take their position. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's not our fault. We, we didn't do anything. You know, the people who are on social media say whatever it is that they have to say. And under their First Amendment rights, we, we don't censor anything. But what we have here are disconcerting, if not dangerous circumstances. I have not yet figured out how social media can become self, I won't say self-policing, because policing is not the right word, but self-balancing. And I don't think anyone has figured that out yet. But you know, now we see not only social media, uh, becoming an ever more powerful force uh, in religion. But we also see new forces coming to religion, notably in the form of venture capital. Over these last several months, venture propositions like hallowed 
sanctify single words that have a lot of power in religion come to the fore as apps. And for someone whose belief system may in fact be more shallow than not, uh, it becomes another way to extract money digitally from the unsuspecting. That's a real concern of mine. Pete, I think, you know, what, what comes to mind when you, when you talk about that is a little bit of a tension between different religions and what's the role of ritual, what is a belief system that you kind of the performative part of religion. Do you congregate in church or do you pray five times a day at home? Do you, you know, share with others um, that experience or is it an individual practice? And, you know, in some ways, for those who have moved away from religion, there are other practices that are actually served by apps. People meditate in order to, you know, bring that sort of inner peace. And, you know, that has also been monetized with online or, or apps. So I'm not, you know, that I'm not so opposed to, to finding ways in this new tech world, but I am very concerned about that first part of that kind of group hatred and kind of the bringing together people in, in such a hateful way and, and allowing those kind of narratives that I, I am troubled by. Polarization. Now that's, that's definitely a real issue. And then well, there's the issue, there's you know, we talk about congregation, uh, you know, people coming together. And earlier on, we, uh, somewhere in our conversation, we use the term atheist. These days, the, the more apt term is secular humanism. Uh, and as such, there are secular humanists who in fact do congregate for good purposes. And it would be interesting to be able to compare and contrast their belief systems, their um, general approach towards doing good, goodness in the world, et cetera, uh, against more traditional religions. We mentioned the idea too that religion is becoming more and more digitized, not just across social media, but a number of other platforms. And let me give you a couple of examples that are troubling for me. There was a series by uh, two evangelical authors, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, called Left Behind. And the series had, I think it was 11 or 12 books, uh, massive tomes. And I happened to take the month of, uh, or the three months of June, July, and August uh, of 1999 and read all 11 or 12 of those books in order and was fascinated. It was, uh, Left Behind is a fictionalization of the second coming of Christ from the standpoint of a regular human being, uh, a pilot who happened to be lucky enough to be on a plane and be asleep when the rapture took place. Uh, so when he woke up, almost half of the plane was gone, uh, as uh, described in the rapture in the Bible, where all of those who were just pure of heart uh, immediately ascend into heaven whole, and uh, the rest of us who are left behind will be uh, are here to be evaluated on judgment day. Uh, and so the story continues from there. I found it, again, uh, not only fascinating and interesting, but extremely good reading. Now, here's what happened. As the years progressed and this book took, these series of books took hold, those 
books were taught in some churches as real. These guys are prophets. They have seen the future. This is the way it's going to be. And there were collections made around the country in order to make a film of the books. And I think they got to maybe the third or fourth and then the funding dried up. Uh, but those movies are out there for you to see. And my fear is that with the media and with some religions, they take their beliefs and they try to actualize them. Uh, and I don't have any problem at all with people actualizing uh, or even portraying whatever aspect of the Bible they think uh, relates to their belief system. I just want people to be honest in that, well, I can't say this is true or not. I just happen to believe it. Uh, and it's up to you to use your critical thinking skills to go beyond that. And separate that again from my relationship with you, uh, albeit you may be Jewish, I am not going to hold a rapture over my head as part of the relationship that I have with my Jewish brothers and sisters. And I hopefully am not going to let that belief system interfere with my treating all of my brothers and sisters with respect, with love, uh, and with dignity. So the question really comes back, uh, and Natalia, I guess, uh, I don't know, I don't think you've mentioned it yet. I know you're going to be a panelist uh, soon <clears throat> discussing this, uh, but I think it's important for us to realize that religion can be a double-edged sword. It is, and again, we must have a, what I consider, a healthy skepticism uh, in our hearts. It doesn't have to permeate our hearts 100%, but it needs to be there with that issue of uh, the possibility of what I started with, which is, am what if I'm wrong? And then revert back to our basic belief, which is the humanity and the justice and love we all ought to show for one another uh, as part of our religious belief. Yeah, Michael. So today I'm participating in a... A panel of a full day conference that Fletcher is hosting on the theme of religion, science and diplomacy, which I find fascinating. You know, it has the religion and science piece. The three panels are religion and public health, the one I'm on, religion and climate change and religion and nuclear proliferation and kind of the anti and, and they have scientists talking about religion, but also on these issues of public health in the midst of a global pandemic climate change, which is global, and also nuclear proliferation, which is global, which requires that you think about religion in its plurality, in its, you know, the diversity that we have across the globe. It requires that you acknowledge that, you know, the relationships between church and state in the U.S. might not be the same in other places, but still their diplomats, you know, come with kind of either religious cultural practices or an understanding of the world. And, you know, I, we haven't gone there yet, but one one thing that I've been thinking about in my remarks um, for that session, which has more to do with medical care and how we how we spend so much money um, at the end of life. And there was a Lancet commission, the Lancet is like the main journal on public health, on the value of death and how we've pushed 
medicine to basically prevent death and extend life to the point where it's not about suffering and about good life. It's about just extending in quantity, the days. And, and it's an interesting tension um, for physicians. It's like, what is our role? And I bring that up because, you know, I, I don't know if I've shared this with, with you yet, that my father, who's a surgeon in Greece, so I grew up in a very medical household, um, also recently became a priest. Uh, in the Greek Orthodox faith, you can be a priest and have children and be married. Um, you can't be sort of the leader, you can't be the head of the church, but you can, you know, most priests are married. Um, and he became a priest and I was talking to him about it. And he said, you know, we need to stop fearing death. And, you know, in medicine, you're trained to just do everything you can. And he said, at some point it becomes both very costly. You know, we spend a vast majority of our medical bills on that extending by 30 days, by 50 days. And, and there's this kind of tension of like, if we were to appreciate life, but also death and grieving and community and, and kind of what many cultural traditions and religious traditions have around death, maybe we could reinvest this medical public health effort to what we know works, which is prevention, investments in early childhood, investments in you know maternal health and, and kind of across the life. And I know last time we spoke about COVID and the impact on American, you know, el Americans, older adults and you know, people above the age of 65. And there is this tension, you know, how do you both accept that we are all gonna die and and also ensure that we're not, you know, ignoring the needs of those who are above 65 because clearly they have medical needs. So, anyways, a lot to think about and unpack there. But um, I do think that death and medicine and religion are are an interesting intersection. There is a uh, a great quip about W. C. Fields, the irascible movie star of his day, uh, in his hospital bed in his in his hospital bed. In his very last days, he was seen holding a Bible uh, and someone asked him about it and he said, what is it you find in the Bible? And he said, I'm looking for loopholes. And I might point out, by the way, that someone has just walked in the door. Hey, Good morning, Frank. Frank. How are you morning. doing? How are you? I am. I am uh, uh, great. And I'd like to follow up on what Nat Lear said going back to last week. Uh, one of her great points was that. Uh, Parents need to have the sex talk with their children, and children need to have the death talk with their parents. And we touched on the living uh, a, a will or the power of, uh, of who's going to make the decisions at the time of death. I've always enjoyed a, a person named Phil Oakes back in the 60s who was uh, quite a comedian and radical, but he came out with a song, you have to do it here and you have to do it now. So the important part to me of, of life is the life that you are living. And death is a, a maybe a crossing of the river for many of us Christians and for other people. But it is a look that we need to, first of all, within ourselves, try to tackle, and yet we can't tackle it really alone. First of all, I believe there is a place of our personal religion that needs to play a part in that. But it, but it is, I have just spent in the last three months tons of medical resources and money trying to find something that apparently is not findable. 
And so there is a point that Lear that you're, you're talking about uh, that that does take place. How much when you know, I mean, when you know that the end is near, when it's not a medical question that you are going to die, how should you look at personally and medically how to come to that end peacefully? The Methodists used to call it, John Wesley used to call it a good death. You know, you died with people around you singing and praying and, and uh, uh, having a, a great spirit. So I think that and then the conference you're going to is very important. How do you have a good death? And, you know, what part does some of the things we talked about, you're talking about this week and last week, play in approaching that? And how does government support that? You know, that's the thing. We're spending so much money at this last interventionist, but we could be giving people the ability to have a good death at home, but with, you know, the resources they might need, hospice care, you know, somebody who can give them pain medication. You don't want people to be in pain. You know, there is, and we need to reframe that. We need to talk about, you know, what is a good death for, for all of us um, and ensure that, you know, resources are given, that it's not that if you're wealthy, you can have a good death at home because you can pay for a private nurse to come and, you know, give you morphine if you need it. Like, I do think there is a responsibility by the medical system and we've stepped so far away from it that people are dying. The majority of people are dying in, in hospitals. And just as this conversation, and, you know, I take it back to childbirth, there's kind of been this revival of like, could childbirth be happening at home or in a more, you know, you know, there, there are these, you know, I, I was in New York City. So in Brooklyn, there are women who give birth in a pool and home with their friends and the midwives. And, you know, I'm not, I, I give birth in yeah, a hospital with method. an epidural and I had a C-section, you know, so it's not there, but somehow like, what is it that we value these kind of, you know, and, and childbirth just as death, I think is this like trans transition of our lives that is so central to how we remember each other and how we build community and somehow allowing for people to have that choice is really important and giving families the knowledge that they can have that choice, that they can talk about, actually, this is how I would want to die. And interestingly, you find that doctors are the ones who are more likely to say no to further interventions because they know that it will prolong days or weeks, but it doesn't give you the quality of life that you want. So doctors are much more likely to, at the end of life, say, you know, I want to have a good death at home with my family members. It's an interesting one. You mentioned doctors. There, there are two great uh, quips that uh, I had heard from uh, physicians in the past. Uh, one being that we spend uh, the early part of our lives, we, we spend our health obtaining wealth, and then later on, we spend our wealth obtaining health. Uh, and the corollary to that is we spend the first part of our lives preparing to live. We spend the second half of our lives preparing to die. And in that last statement, how much of our later lives is really spent preparing to die? And I think that that's probably pretty minimal because of the fact that we tend to put off uh, things that can be important or very difficult to deal with. It becomes a notion of, and I'm just speaking personally for me, every single day is a gift, a real gift. And I cherish it the very first thought when I wake up every morning. Today, I have a gift. What will I do with it? And as each gift comes, I collect them and I make the most of them. And they relate to this notion of there will someday be a last gift. 
will I look upon all the gifts that precede it as being valued, remembered, cherished? And that is for me, perhaps part of my pathway to a peaceful, good death. I hope we go back and transcribe that, uh, Pete. That was eloquently said. Um, It's about living in the present and in the moment and making the most of it. Right. Uh, you know, which brings us to Frank's, I guess, uh, inquiry, uh, and Natalia, your, uh, you know, your discussion with your father and our inability to deal with tough topics. Uh, I have, I guess, since my youth, really been looking for that nexus between science and religion. Uh, if nothing else, just out of personal uh, curiosity as to explore uh, the mere question, is there a nexus between science and religion? Uh, and one of the most fascinating books that I've ever read that has led me to believe to answer that question in the affirmative, yes, 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 there is a nexus between science and religion. Absolutely. The afterlife um, is called, uh, now, don't get blown away. The name of the book is The Demon Haunted World. <laughs> and okay, it's then. called, uh, uh, the, that's, the, that's the header t- uh, 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 title. And then underneath that, it says, Science as a Candle in the Dark. Now, those of you who may be familiar with the book know who the author is, and I'm going to share with the audience that the author is Carl Sagan. And over the years, I have found that book to be not only enlightening, but also very calming and very extremely insightful because Sagan gets into uh, a couple of things that uh, I think a lot of uh, religious people like myself are able to start to uh, explore and explain. For example, elegant, de- uh, elegant design. Mm-hmm. Elegant design is a uh, is basically a science and religious philosophy that says there has to be something in this galaxy, universe, the cosmos that help to construct everything that we see. It, it, it's not all by chance because it's too, what Sagan referred to as, uh, it's too well-designed mm-hmm. to be random. Uh, then there's string theory that says all of us in the entire universe are interconnected. It's like the, uh, the idea of the force uh, that George Lucas took and, and, you know, and really sort of built Star Wars around. Mm-hmm. That premise that, again, there is something that binds us all, uh, that if you can tap into it, you really get a feel for all of us as a species uh, and all of the life forces that are here. And that actually is part of my religious belief. I believe that there is something there that has put together this elegant design. And I also believe, too, that we are not alone in the galaxy and the universe, that there are other intelligent as well as uh, sentient life forces that are out there. Now, why do I bring this up? Because, again, it is important for us to have these discussions throughout life. Uh, to, to your point, Pete, 
Mm-hmm. It's not just about creating wealth. It is also about, uh, you know, in the first part of our life. I think our lifelong journey is to become more sentient to everything around us. Absolutely. And, and I life think, is not just well, what, about what's accumulating the great things. By Camus, I think it is. It's, it's, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. And, and I think with respect to self-examination, life examination as a belief, um, some of the greatest insight uh, falls close to the greatest joy of living when you take the time to step back and examine all around you. Um, and I find that people who are unfortunately, uh, I don't know how to put this delicately, intellectually undisciplined or, or uninterested are really missing something, unfortunately, uh, by not being introspective or, uh, or, or even you know, curious for that matter. The Einsteinian phrase, by the way, that falls close to what you're talking about is that uh, Einstein quipped, you know, God doesn't play dice with the universe. I wanted to chime in um, about two things. For, first of all, something a little trivial for Natalia to share when you go to your conference today, since you did mention it was at the Fletcher mm-hmm. School. Would you uh, share with them that uh, you do a radio show called More Perfect Union with some folks from Franklin, Massachusetts, which is where uh, Austin B. Fletcher was raised and where he was buried. And Austin B. Fletcher is the uh, founder of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts uh, University. And we would invite them all to come out and visit his uh, community and his his gravesite. But he was uh, a great benefactor. And that's how that school exists. So share that with them. But once again, uh, it, it's all our fault. <laughs> that's right. We'll take it. But I was intrigued uh, with your comments, Michael, about uh, about uh, books and that uh, existence between uh, science and religion. And uh, I, I read more um, more normally titled books. And my uh, the one that impacted me along these lines was uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And I remember reading that when I was a freshman at Worcester Polytech way back in 1979. But uh, it, it begins with a discussion of the Copernican Revolution and how for centuries, um, you know, religion grew under the notion that uh, everything revolved around the earth. And when Copernican made, uh, made this, Copernicus made this uh, um uh, finding that uh, actually uh, everything revolved around the sun, uh, it just uh, just threw the world into a tizzy and uh, <coughs> didn't have him favored among uh, many folks. But, um, you know, heretic, uh, but, but, right. The concept <laughs> of the book was that uh, science progresses uh, through shifts in paradigms and uh, the, the world beliefs that we have can really make a seismic shift. I mean, uh, for the longest time, people believed that the earth was flat. And uh, it wasn't until, uh, uh, well, look at, uh, for some it still is. But uh, it's amazing how these uh, shifts in uh, paradigms and worldviews can influence uh, not only uh, religion, but, uh, you know, it's a scientific finding, a scientific fact that all of a sudden, uh, throws uh, things off kilter. And uh, I found that book to be absolutely riveting. I was actually going looking because I know it's on my bookshelf here in the office, but uh, 
I have so many books in there that it's buried among them. But uh, what's the name of the book uh, again? Called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Ah. Is the author K-U-H-N. Great reading. I would I would proffer also the notion that with respect to paradigm shifts and confusions, at this point, I expect that we have probably all contributed to Natalia's confusion, but at least she goes into her lecture being confused on a far higher plane. She's not confused about the Fletcher School now. I am not. I just don't know how I'm going to bring that up. You know, sometimes when we were kids in boring lectures in college, we would pick a word like, (laughs) you know, penguin or dinosaur that you had to bring into your question just to keep each other entertained. (laughs) Yeah. So you've kind of given me this challenge of bringing in Austin B. Fletcher and Franklin in a natural way in my comments. I will. I will. I take the challenge, Jeff. I have all the faith in the world in you. So do I. Uh, especially around the especially around the idea of telling them about how you spent your morning with your friends and your weekly endeavor in this podcast. And here's the relevance of that. <laughs> so my question, uh, there's always last, a way, Natalie. Any last thoughts way. among us? As we're long as, as long as we're talking about Franklin, why don't we talk about the important religious question that might might be uh, surmountable in Franklin, and that's that Franklin has a white church that is owned by the town, but dates back, I don't know, to the 1800s, maybe. It was mm-hmm. last used for religious purposes in 1972, is in total disrepair. There may be some historical reasons to preserve it and for the citizens of Franklin to spend money, but is there a religious reason? that this religious structure should remain standing or should the town demolish it? Is that the one next to the firehouse you're talking about? No, uh, it's the one, if you come out Grove Street onto, what is it, Washington? Or Washington, yes. Washington, it's the, it's the white church, originally a congregational church, because Rentham was so far away to go to church, they built that church. And uh, as and somehow Franklin, the town of Franklin, uh, acquired the property. It became uh, a meeting house for a while. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, like all churches, um, generally churches become decommissioned by their respective religions at some point, and they are really just buildings in the end. Uh, and if they have purely historic value, be it through the originating religion or for other profound reasons. Uh, Ultimately, it falls to the historical society to try to muster, I think, the wherewithal to be able to uh, restore the building. But if the building has no practical use, and it's certainly at this point, it's challenged by the fact that it doesn't meet code in so many ways, it may be at a point where the land it sits on is worth more than the building itself. And with all of those thoughts, thank you all for listening today. I'm Peter J. This is our journey toward a more perfect union. Great topic today. Thank you one and all. And if you have a thought that you would like to share with us, you can contact us at info, I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. Until the next time, as we continue on our journey toward a more perfect union, thank you for joining us. This is Franklin Public Radio.